This episode is brought to you by the Bowers & Wilkins PX7 S2 wireless headphones. Hear what your music really sounds like. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko... No, 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 no. This isn't right, is it? It doesn't sound right, does it? What do you mean? Well, I sound really reverberant, don't I? There's a big echo behind my voice, right? You do? Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> okay, let's change rooms. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. That sounds much better, doesn't it? Um, joining me today is, once again, the always iridescent... <laughs> Michael Lavonia from the uh, the green state of New Jersey. Well, the snowy wilds of New Jersey as of this morning. Really? It's snowing, is it? God. A little bit. A couple inches last night. Yeah. Well, it's glorious sunshine here. Uh, <laughs> what is it? 17 or 18 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in American money, but it's a, probably about 65 or something like that. In American money? In American money, yeah. <laughs> something like that in Fahrenheit. Yeah. But of yeah. course, I mean, as because we haven't done a podcast since the start of January, right? Yes. And since then, for me, a lot has happened. A lot. <laughs> so uh, I guess this is a good opportunity to update people that I have moved to Portugal, but not permanently. Just mm. temporarily, just for the winter season, because right now in Berlin, uh, it's also snowing, I believe. I think it's, I think it's going to be like... A high of one degree with a low of minus three. Again, that's Celsius. <laughs> don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but probably what thirty degrees, twenty-five degrees. I don't know what you call it. I don't know why you have a temperature system that, where the freezing point is not a zero. It's like what is it, thirty something? Uh, thirty-two is it? Thirty-two. I don't God, know. I don't even know. I haven't even <laughs> right. I don't absurd. think about these things. Uh, zero. Let's do this. Water freezes. Yeah, at this real... thirty-two degrees. Right. I just did the conversion. So okay. Yeah. So water freezes at the very memorable thirty-two degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Who's, who's going to forget that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. But we own that. We own that. We're not changing to some. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. You're... System that's not ours. Right, some communist system, right? That's yes. Exactly. Reds under the bed with their metric system. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we should we should get underway properly, really, with some some news items. I think I am going to go first with this one, with what I think is a fairly significant announcement from Shit Audio. Um, people know Shit Audio is the kind of purveyors of affordable hi-fi, but I think they've really outdone them. Selves. This time round, they've announced two really aff super affordable, I call them, power amplifiers. And they're kind of small. They look like desktop devices. And I guess they are in some respects. Uh, the first one is called the Wrecker, R E double K R. And I guess it's about the size of uh, a shit Manny or mm -hmm. a Magni or a Modi. Like it's the small chassis sized. Uh, components that shit make and i believe they make those in texas now yes and it's a class ab amplifier which is i think the big story here because you can go onto amazon and buy any number of class d amps from chinese manufacturers of i guess to me unknown 
reputation, really. They're kind of the brand names I don't really know. I've tried a couple. I didn't really warm to them, quite literally. I've just found them a bit sort of cold and sterile and a bit thin. I think Mm. cheap switching amplifiers, Class D amplifiers, tend to sound thin. Now, I'm sure many people will disagree with me, and they might have a you know a $200 piece going with whatever speakers they have and go, well, it sounds great to me. And I'm sure it does. But I think relative to a lot of the other stuff that I generally experience, no, not really, <laughs> which is why I've tended to stay away from them. But shit have come in with this wrecker, and it, it packs a whopping <laughs> two mm. watts per channel into eight <laughs> ohms. Now, you can laugh at this, two watts per channel. Now, the, the first, I think, response that many people, well, many schooled audiophiles will have is, well, the first watt makes, is, is the most important one, right? It makes all the difference. The second thing is, is that two watts will be enough if you are in a small room, listening in a small room with loudspeakers, or you're listening to your loudspeakers on a desktop, and or your loudspeakers are high-efficiency loudspeakers like Klipsch, Zoo, JBL, I've run out of ideas on that one, but like like horn speakers, single driver speakers, ones without crossovers tend to be sort of 90 plus dB, right? So a Mm. lot of horn enthusiasts tend to run like two or three watts of single-ended tube amplification with their speakers. But I think this would be a neat substitute. And also, if you've got two of these wreckers, you get four watts per channel because you can run them as little mini monoblocks. <laughs> right. Which I think is absolutely just terrific, right? And I yes. think... Yes, yes. Right? I mean, I think and what I like about this is this really kind of, to use a horrible cliche, to sc- it scatters the pigeons amongst those sort of no-name class D amps on Amazon. Hmm. Because the record, I've got to look at my notes here. It comes in at, I have lost the price. Oh, my goodness. It's 149 US. Thank you for saving me there, Michael. 149 US for the record. So to get a Class ABM at 149 bucks, I think, is a win. Now, I'm not saying that all Class AB performs better than all Class D, because mm. if you get like a three grand Class D amp, like I'm looking at now, the Cambridge Audio Evo 150, or even the NADM 10 V2, hmm. they're going to sound better. It's not the topology, it's the implementation. But I think shit have earned a reputation for making very good, if not like absolutely incredibly amazing, earth-shatteringly wonderful sounding hi-fi, but at really sensible prices. And 150 bucks, I think, is a real win. Yeah. The thing yes. is about this small wrecker is that the... The power supply is one of those sort of outboard bricks. So you're going to have to find space for that if, you know, if that's a, a problem for you. Then you might want to look at the the slightly more luxurious unit they've introduced <laughs> called the – now, I hope I get this right. I think it's called the Gjallarhorn. I think the J is, a, is pronounced as a Y. It's not Gjallarhorn, that's for sure. <laughs> and this is another Class AB small amplifier, but this comes in you sort of like – your sort of Jotunheim Bifrost-sized chassis. And this puts a toroidal transformer inside mm. the case, so the power supply is also inside the case. It's not one of those sort of outboard bricks. And like the Wrecker, it also uses a current feedback circuit. It's all discrete components. But this one also adds shit's continuity STM output stage for, and I'm going to quote the press release here, more linear performance. Again, it's class AB. Well, this one gives us 10 watts per channel into 8 ohms or 30 watts per channel 
if you're running two as monoblocks. Now, 30 watts per channel is starting to get towards, you know, entry level integrated, right? I think for the class AB, 30 watts per channel, maybe the lower end of that. Mm-hmm. Sure. But Michael, can you tell us the price on the Gellerhorn? Because I can't find it again. Two ninety nine. Two ninety nine for a Gellerhorn, so six hundred dollars for the pair. Hmm. You know, that's I think that's a a great way to test out for yourself what separating the amplifiers per speaker can do for you. So rather than have both of the amplif- amplification circuits in a single box, you've kind of got two power supplies, two toroidals, two class A B circuits and output stage in their own chassis physically mm-hmm. separated and therefore I guess electrically separated. So I think that's a good way to, you know, try that out. But I, I mean, I think shit, they're going to sell literally shit tons of these. <laughs> yeah, I would not be surprised. Yes. I mean, I would say based on experience with the um, higher efficiency speakers that um, if you're, you know, if you're looking at two watts, of output power you definitely and in and and listening to speakers not on a desktop but in a room Mm. you you want high 90s minimum uh efficiency with the i mean as a general i would say as a general rule yeah i guess unless Uh, you're listening in a i don't know like a three meter by two meter room there's me with my metric system again but uh, what's that in feet nine feet by uh, six feet, something like that. I don't know. I'm just getting them multiplying by three. That's what I know. <laughs> right. It's just, yeah. And it also, it, efficiency never tells the whole story as well. It's more complex. But anyway, I'm just saying, because I used to, I've owned, and I've owned amps that are two, four watts mm. and drove uh, driven speakers, you know, 95 dB area. And yeah. um, even that's pushing it. So for okay. in room. Yeah. Anyway, just as a little footnote. Yeah. But you do you see what my point, it really has, it really does sort of focus our attention on the size of the room, the efficiency of the loudspeakers, especially that's probably the number one factor here, isn't it? Yeah. And then possibly the size of the room and then also how loud you like to listen, because I don't know about you, Michael, but I'm a, I'm a quiet listener. I think in a, in a recent video, I said I was, I did some testing and I will come mm. to this later. I did some testing and I sent the test signal out at 80 dB and I never really listened listen that high, not regularly. Maybe like low 70s, mid 70s, something like that. Yeah, I um, don't. Yeah, I'm similar. I don't I don't enjoy listening to music very loud. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think it robs the music of intimacy because it's so in your face. Yeah, so it's, it's just, it, it's certainly a matter of taste. I've had people come here uh you know, and if I hand them the the remote, uh, I mean, some people crank it so much higher than I would ever listen, and that's how they, you know, that's they want it. That's the level they want to listen, not just as like, oh, let's see how loud this system can play, right? You know, and it's yeah, it's just it's interesting to me because it's just as you know, it's too too much for me. I don't, I'm not really a fan of. Of wincing. <laughs> that's the thing. It, that's exactly the right word. Like somebody turns my hi-fi up too loud, I wince. I'm like, oh no, I don't want to mm. listen that loud. It makes me feel uncomfortable. But then yeah. again, I mean, I, I, it really is a matter of horses for courses, isn't it? Because I was talking to yeah. Ter- Terry Ellis 
from Pursuit Perfect System last week because he did a Dirac Live calibration for me. And he's like, yeah, I like to listen loud, John. I can't, I can't stand it too quiet. So I'm like, okay, all right, Terry, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> but he's just, yeah, he likes to listen loud. I do not. I don't know. I just, and speaking to Srijan Ebayan at uh, Six Moons, he's a quiet listener. Yeah. Mm. Um, which I think is why the, I, well, I won't say the longer I do this, but my inclination towards high efficiency speakers is stronger than ever. Yeah, that was, yes. Right? Makes I mean, perfect sense, yes. Yeah, I mean, you've got the the Devores, right? I forget which ones you have. I have the 096. Right, and um, their efficiency is? Uh, I'll look it up. Well, it must be like uh, 91, 93, something like that. Right? Higher. I think they're not, I'm, I'm not going to guess. Okay. I'm going to just okay. state, as a matter of fact, it's 96. Right, we don't want John Devore emailing us with a correction. <laughs> yeah, 96 CB. 96, okay, so that's that's up there, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah. And I, what I like about that is, yeah, low-level listening has has life to it. Absolutely. Yeah, they wake up at very low levels. Yes. yes. And I don't find that with 85, 86, 87 dB stand mounts. You need yeah. to wind the wick a little bit to bring them to life. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm sure yeah. many of our listeners will, will experience this directly themselves. So. It's not. It's not some kind of secret or anything like that. It's just, <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's um, let's move it along. Another news item. This one from you, Michael. All right. So, yeah, DCS has come out uh, with the Bartok upgrade to Apex <laughs> level. Mm. So uh, the Rossini, previously the Rossini and the uh, Vivaldi mm -hmm. have gotten the Apex upgrade treatment. And now the Bartok, uh, it, it, it's now available for the Bartok. And in essence, um, it's a hardware upgrade, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of interesting, right? I mean, in a way, because when we think of DCS DAX, uh, so much of the technology is about the ring deck, which of course is a hardware solution, but it's it's there essentially the software that drives the hardware that got a lot of attention over the years. Mm -hmm. um, but now, yes, so the Apex upgrade for the Bartok, um, it's a hardware upgrade. And unfortunately, I don't know the cost of the upgrade. I don't have yeah. that information. I don't know either. I mean, we know that the Bartok is somewhere in ballpark 12,000 US, right? Something like that. So I don't know whether the Apex is more expensive. And I also, this is just terrible news item, really, isn't it? Because we don't know. <laughs> if, yeah, if, let me just take a, yeah, can, um, I would imagine it's got to be. Can we have them, can you, I mean, if you've got an existing unit, the existing Bartok, the original Bartok, can you ship it back to your local distributor for them to do the upgrade? Or does it have to go all the way back to the UK? See, That's a great question, John. You know, I, I tell you why. Now, I would assume it's a dealer upgrade. I'll okay. assume. Now, the DCS Bartok Apex, I see, is costing $20,950. So that's quite, a, that's quite a jump from the original in terms of pricing. Now, that might be because of the, the inflation, I guess, kick that's occurred in the last 12 months. It might be partly that and also partly the higher costs of maybe building a Bartok Apex over and above the original. Yeah, I um, would assume, yeah, I have not been keeping tabs on the prices of DCS DAX and the Bartok in particular. Mm. I would assume like every, 
like most other things that there that price had jumped already for the original um but in any event yeah so 20,000 so uh, there is i if you don't mind i i did enjoy how dcs describes part of the upgrade mhm because this is a you know i mean i don't i couldn't i couldn't uh, do justice to describing how the ring DAC works. This is very complicated technology, right? Mm. And essentially, um, you know, the DCS DACs don't use an off-the-shelf chip. Right. They use their own ground-up technology, which is a mix of hardware-software solution. Mm. Um, so one of the improvements with this Apex hardware upgrade is to the analog output stage. And the DCS has described, um, let's see if I can jump into a good part for the quote. Mm. Um, let's see how this works. This is, this is all quote now. Imagine, yep. for example, a ruler clamped to a desk. If it's a thin metal ruler, you can easily move the free end. If it's a thick wooden ruler, it's much harder. In this analogy, a stiff ruler equates to low output impedance. In paren, it's hard to change voltage. And the flexible one to high output impedance. The load represented by the ring deck changes with the signal. This is analogous to changing how hard you press the end of the ruler. And as a result, the reference voltage will change in response to the signal, blah, 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 blah. Essentially, what they're saying here is this stiff, this stiffer, thicker wooden ruler um, is the preferred um, analogous, analogously to this stiffer um, performance that comes with this apex upgrade mm -hmm. in that this reference um, impedance is more stable. And this equates to, um, well, the keeping the output impedance low minimizes the voltage variation and thereby the extra stuff on the output. So without overcomplicating things, um, what they're claiming here is they've, they've improved performance so that, both internal and external factors, noise, mm. have less impact on on the analog output of their DAC. Measured, measured output. So, mm. this, I mean, this is interesting on, on two levels, actually. The first most basic level is that a lot of people tend to focus, I think, too heavily on the the actual DAC chip or the, the thing that does the decoding inside the DAC because there's no DAC chip inside the Bartok. It's their own ring DAC, as we previously mentioned. Hmm. And what I like about this is it highlights how important the following analog output stage is to the performance of a DAC. Yes. The second thing is, is that well, I think we touched on this in, in a previous episode about how noise entering the DAC, electrical noise entering the DAC, can mess with the performance of the analog output stage of said DAC. Yes. And it seems that DCS with their Apex Bartok materials are confirming as much. Absolutely. Also, interestingly, DCS shares 
<laughs> that when you get to the level, this is according to them. I have no way to, to confirm or deny the claim. Mm. I kind of I believe what they're saying, frankly, that the level of performance of their DAX is so um, measured performance is so high that one problem you can run into when performing measurements on their DAX is that the audio measurement systems, this mm. is a quote, mm. can introduce noise or distortion that will blur that will blur the the actual performance of the DAC. So the measurement equipment is actually injecting noise and distortion huh. of its own into the into this measured results. So does that mean that they have more advanced measuring equipment than than say your typical hi-fi publication? Well, um I guess it would suggest well, I, it would certainly and also Without having this knowledge, okay, um, without having this knowledge that the artifacts from the measuring equipment can actually, um, all right, here's, I'm just, I'll try, I'm trying to be clear and not getting into weeds. So I'm going to quote DCS. A good example is when measuring harmonics, where the second harmonic inherent in the test equipment can cancel with the one in the item you're trying to measure. Hmm. This can result in a measurement that is much lower than it should be and one which tends to behave unexpectedly as a performance of the item under test is adjusted. In other words, so if, you, if you're not aware of these things, and I would have to suggest that not everyone who owns test equipment is aware of these things, um, they could lead to faulty interpretation of measurements, right? Well, there's something we've beaten. <laughs> well, we past, have but... because I mean, because I keep seeing this terminology of like subjective assessments and objective assessments, and every time I see it, I think there's no such thing as a purely objective assessment because you still have to design the test. That's that's a subjective choice that you you know the the assessor has to make, right? Like, what are they going to measure and how are they going to do it? And then also, as we've mentioned before, and we've beaten this drum regularly, even within that testing, you also have to interpret the measurements. In yes. fact, some publications don't even do that. They don't even interpret things. And I, I mean, for me, that that's, I don't want to say it's a failing, but I always feel like it's half a meal. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like all yeah. meat and no sides. And yeah. I need the interpretation because I want to know what does this mean to you as somebody, you know, to the writer or the uh, the assessor, the reviewer, what do these measurements mean to you? You don't have to necessarily be right, but just tell me what you think about them. Because without the interpretation, it's useless. It's a bit like going to the doctor, right? And he, mm. you've had a you've had blood 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 work done, and he just pushes a piece of paper across the table and goes, "There's your results." Now, I, you know, I might better sort of fudge mm. an assessment, but I don't know unless it's clearly indicated where the overly low or overly high values are i'm none the wiser same if he like popped an x-ray up on the on the light box I, I mean what am i looking at like if i've just had a brain scan and they're looking for a tumor i want him to tell me whether there's a, whether there is a tumor or not and not leave me to do the interpretation right so yes yeah. again it's a subjective call isn't it like when you go to the doctor they're making a subjective assessment of Oh, I don't want to even call it objective. Well, it is objective data, really, isn't it? I guess it is. But this, you know, that objective data is wrapped in a layer or two layers of subjectivity. You know, like 
the test design and the way it's executed, and then the interpretation after the numbers are spat out by the test. Yeah, and also, yeah, and I, yeah, and in, in part, when we talk about these things, I I get, and I'm actually getting there today, is that um, like I don't feel like I should have to waste my time explaining why people with very extreme views don't see the big picture. <laughs> it's like, you know what I'm saying? So these extremists mm. and they're extremists uh, everywhere on every thing, you know, mm. but I, I t- I'd prefer to just ignore them and stick with what's and stick with reality. So DCS in, in talking in detail about their, how they approached even the, the notion of, of, "Quote unquote upgrading their decks. Mm. This entire process absolutely they emphasize that the you know some of the later steps include listening. Mm. And this, um, I'll do a, I'll do a quote because it's it just seems so uh, relevant to our discussion. As DCS mm. technical director Andy, M- M- oh gosh, McCarg points out one of the great challenges in hi-fi is correlating certain measurements to certain sonic characteristics and it's not a straightforward case of enhancing one aspect of a product's technical performance in order to improve the sound in a particular area so uh, all to say um at least in in terms of the this dcs apex you know um lots of testing and lots of listening Mm. went into the final product Right, because they have to do a combination of the two, because only a combination of two will get them where they want to go. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that 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 does seem to jive with pretty much all of the, I guess, mainly loudspeaker designers I spoke to last year on this podcast. All of them yep. said, yeah, we have to do some measurements and then some listening, and we can't dispense with either. Yes, and also, yeah, and to get back to – to bring shit back into the picture, you know, they've made very interesting companion products, I'll call them, that mm. address this directly, right? The same product designed two different, well, the, the same named product designed two different ways. One way mm. that measures really well and one that they feel sounds better. Mm-hmm. You know, so again. Yeah, and they're finding that the one that sounds better is the one that's selling and the one that measures pretty well is actually i think in in terms of the the ragnarok i think it's the is it the less is more or the more is less i never remember which I one forget, yeah yeah the, 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 the one that measures the best is not selling very well and i think they're going to discontinue it soon yeah and it right and yeah in in their own words the one that m- measures less well yeah it's less is more sounds, yeah yeah sounds better yeah, yeah. so anyway just all the interesting. I mean, I do think DCS on their website, um, Apex: A Closer Look, is the page. It's 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 a very good read, mm. and they share a lot of information in that. Um, that's very educational as well. I mean, I certainly got a lot out of it, um, as you can tell, since I'm quoting from it going right, on but, but- a bit. But anyway, um, anyway, I think it's it's good information. And initial reports, not on the bar talk, but I've read reviews. Um, on on the Vivaldi Apex and 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 I've heard from owners who have upgraded to Apex to this Apex that it's a very clear improvement. Let's put hmm. it that way. It's interesting. Well, talking of um, people that like to listen as well as measure, let's let's bring Peter Como 
into the picture with our next news item. This is about a new speaker from Wharfdale. Mm. Now, Peter Como is the guy, the chap who re rebirthed the Mission 770 and 700. Ah. And I think this story has been done to death on the net, but I'll just recap it briefly. Basically, in redesigning or reintroducing the Mission 770, a speaker from the 70s, what he had to do was redo the crossover by ear. And I think he did something like a hundred and something iterations ah. of the crossover until he got the sound that he was happiest with and was closest to the original because mm. there were no, apparently no diagrams or no way that he could just copy and paste the original crossover because he was using a different driver, um, mm. a different mid-base driver, a different tweeter. So it was all done by listing basically. And and, and from reading the press release of this new Wharfdale speaker, there is a whole section in there about how, yes, there was lots of measurements done, but also lots of listening done because they couldn't do without either one of those things. Now, the new speaker that I'm talking about was actually teased in Munich. It was just there in the window <clears throat> of the IAG room. IAG is the parent company of Wharfdale. Um, it was there in the window. I don't think much fuss was made about it at the time, I might even be as bold to suggest there was actually just an empty box or rather just two drivers in the front and bitey posts on the back and not a lot inside because I don't think it was finished, which is probably why they weren't talking about it, but it is now. It's called the Dovedale and it's a reimagining or a rebirth of another 70 speaker from Wharfdale. And apparently there were many versions of Dovedale in the seventies, but this one, the one that they've the reintroducing now is based roughly on the Dovedale three. But apparently the, the new one's cabinet is slightly taller, slightly wider, and a lot deeper. Hmm. And apparently that cabinet, or those cabinet dimensions of the new one, are closer to a, a build-at-home kit that Wharfdale also issued in the 70s. Huh. So you could build your own Dovedale yeah. loudspeaker in the 70s. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm too young to remember, remember those kinds of kits, but I'm sure <laughs> members of our audience are not. Hmm. So... Yeah, anyway, so it, it's a new vintage-esque speaker. It looks like a speaker from the 70s. It's a three-way design. It's got a 25-centimeter base driver, 13-centimeter mid-range driver. They're both Kevlar. And the mid-range driver apparently has its own internal housing. And I guess the idea there is to stop the base driver's vibrations from interfering with its mm. performance, right? Mm. Yeah. It's a the loose idea. And obviously there is also a tweeter. It's 25 mils. It's a sit no, no, it's not a silk dome, it's a fabric dome. And it has a ceramic magnet. And I think it also has um its own sort of rear chamber to absorb the back wave of the tweeter. But these are also like technical nitty-gritty things. I mean, I guess also the internal bracing of the cabinet. And it's I think the nominal, nominal, I can't even say it. The nominal impedance is six ohms, minimum 3.6 ohms, hmm. 89 dB sensitive. So kind of like not super insensitive, but not super sensitive either. So it should mm -hmm. be an okay load to drive by most amplifiers of say minimum 40 watts. So I don't think those shit amplifiers will, will go well necessarily. I'm guessing the ports are on the back. It's a twin port situation. Um, but the, the really the big story here is that it looks like a loudspeaker from the 70s. It looks beautiful. It comes with its own stand, which is one of those kind of open frame stands, but quite low. So they call this a stand mount, but it's a big, 
bulky stand mount. I do have measurements of how big it is, actually. It, I think. It, yeah, I'm looking at the photos. Now, that stand is, am I correct that you can fit LPs? I don't think in this one. I think it was ah. in the in the in another Wharfdale speaker. Oh, okay. So that that one was tall enough to accommodate LPs, but this one I think is pretty low okay. because the speaker itself. And I'm going to talk metric again here, Michael, so you can zone out if you need to. Um, <laughs> Sixty six centimeters by thirty seven by forty two, and each speaker weighs twenty six ah, kilos. Okay. So it's you know it, it's a mm. big bulky, I guess. Back then, it wasn't a big speaker, but I think by modern standards, it is. It was certainly in terms of stand mount loudspeakers. So, but also, I think what Peter Como has done is is he, he's included some of the developments that made their way into the seven seventy and seven hundred speakers from Mission because I think them all made in the same factory. Oh, okay. so yeah. so the seven not seven hundred seven seventy is made in the UK. This new Dovedale is made in the UK as well. And the reason I say some of the developments from the 770 have made them their way into Dovedale is because when I spoke to Peter Como last year, he was talking about the the cabinet material that he used for the 770. And I think it's pretty similar because he's used a combination of MDF and high-density particle board and then glued it with this sort of vibration-resistant glue. Hmm. And yeah, so that that's included in the Dovedale and I, th I mean, I, I'm hoping to get a pair. I've already made the phone call, mm. and I'll talk about when that will happen because that's related to where I am right now. But anyway, let's just get into pricing. It's five thousand pounds for a pair, mm -hmm. and eight hundred for a pair of stands. But if you buy them together, you get the the, the, the four items, so two speakers, two stands, for fifty five hundred quid, mm. which. I've got to remind people again, this speaker is made in the UK. So I think the general takeaway for me is that I think this is where IAG's reintroduction of vintage style speakers will top out because they've got the Linton and uh, the Denton. I think the Linton is the one with the LP stand. Uh, okay. Um, and I, th I think five grand is probably as high as they'll go because Wharfdale aren't known for going much higher than that, even in their traditional line of speakers, because this is part of their, what's this called? The heritage line. Hmm. So the Denton, the Linton, and now the Dovedale are part of the heritage line. And then obviously you've, with Wharfdale, you've got the 12.1 series. There's a whole slew of stand mounts and floor standers there. There's the is it the Elysian? And there's another one as well. I've forgotten the name of the range, but I like the speakers that look like yesterday's speakers. I, th I think they look bloody fantastic. I, I can't. Yeah, wait to I agree. Independent. I mean, certainly, yeah, it reminds me of when you were I young? grew up with. <laughs> <laughs> I was so trying to avoid stepping on a mine there, but you know. Yeah, I'm happy to explode it for you. <laughs> yes, yes. I <laughs> we'll saw you it I saw it coming. Yeah. Well, you know, back in the uh, industrial age. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I think I, I like this this recent trend of reintroducing older designs, but with modern technology, because we have to really emphasize once again, as we did with Mission and JBL before it, that it might look like a vintage speaker, but everything about it is built with modern tech. 
they haven't gone back to the original driver. They, they're mm. using modern drivers, in this case, Kevlar. So I think that is the best of both worlds if you like this aesthetic, and I do. It's not for everybody, but I think, you know, I think this one will be more popular than the Mission 770 for one fundamental reason. And that is on the Mission 770, it says Mission 770 across the front yeah. of the speaker. Yeah. And not a lot of people like that. Or there's, there, I think there are more people that would be turned off by that than just looking at a sort of fairly bulky plane. I don't want to say plane. No, it's quite stylish. I mean, it's kind of got that, yeah, that 70s vibe, that mid-century modern vibe. I think, yeah, it, it's a it's a big draw card without the, I guess, what would you call it? The, the, the mini deal breaker that is, you know, Mission 770 across the front of the speaker. I yeah. personally, I, I like that, but not everybody does. I understand mm. that. Mm. Anyway, let's move on. Next news item. Michael, it's over to you. Yeah, it's yeah, back to me. So Copeland, mm. I've always, you know, I've never reviewed anything from Copeland and I, I really, I need to correct that. This is a company uh, that's been around since the mid 1980s, mm -hmm. a Danish company. And the new product they released is called the CTA 407. Mm -hmm. And it's a, <laughs> yeah well it's a it's an integrated tube amplifier it uses mm. 6550s or any of the kt family kt88s or kt120 or kt150s mm. um for approximately 50 watts uh per channel mm -hmm. um interestingly it includes a, f a moving magnet phono stage it mm -hmm. includes a tape loop in out. Right. Okay. I, I, you know, I, I, I do question, you know, like how many people actually use that, but how do I, you know, I don't know, I guess. I don't know either. I mean, yeah. I would, I kind of, there was a phase, I think when Peachtree put it on some of their amps and they were recommending people go and use a tube buffer. So they, you know, the signal will come out of the out and then to the tube buffer and then come back into the in. Mm, mm. And that tube buffer was made by iFi, I believe. But I think a shortage of tubes or a particular type of tube nixed that product. So that's no more. Um, so I, I could see that as one use. But if you've got a tube amp, then you don't really need a tube buffer, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fair point, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's my job, staying the obvious. <laughs> Um, oh boy. Well, you know, uh, I look at, I, uh, so mm. can I just interject here? Cause I, I look yeah, at this absolutely, yeah. when I first saw this, I had no idea it was a tube amplifier because they're not exposed. Are they? They're inside a box. That's and correct. It, yeah. It looks more like a solid state amp from, from the outside than it does a tube amp with all the, the sort of the glory exposed. Yeah. It's, I think it's a very attractive looking amp. Yeah, me too. Chunky, you know, yeah. yeah. Understated. Are they, did you did you say they were Danish? They are Danish, right? Yes, Copeland. Okay, yeah, it's one of those brands that for me has flown under the radar for such a long time, and I've seen it here and there, but always sort of in my mind, I've parked it next to Conrad Johnson, mm. right? Which I suppose is a compliment, isn't it? Like a high end, very traditional, but very well respected, but slightly old fashioned. I'm going to get mail for this, but whatever. A slightly old fashioned <laughs> tube amp amplifier manufacturer right and this is a danish i don't say it's i don't want to say it's a danish take on that because it's not but that's how it's kind of filed away in my head but how much is this thing 
Yeah, you know, I was just trying to find the. I'm looking up the U.S. price as we. I think. I think the. What's the uh, euro? I don't see. Yeah, I'm sorry. The news stories don't include U.S. price. It's 6,900 euros. Euros. Yeah. Okay. So in European money, it's 6,900. So it's kind mm. of yeah, it's up there, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It looks the part. I mean, it does. And I think it would be a, a great partner for that Wharfdale Dovedale. Oh yeah. I hate saying Wharfdale Dovedale because you're saying Dale twice. It just feels really awkward. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, it's, I think it's an interesting amplifier. I mean, I I, I, I like it because, and the reason I wrote about this because I just thought it wasn't a showy thing, hmm. and I'd never covered them before, you know, in, in terms of news. And I thought, well, why not? It just looks just like a solidly well-made amplifier. And if you're into tubes but don't like the showy nature of tubes or having to dust them because mm. that's a pain, and also having to maintain them in terms of uh, biasing because I think this is an auto biasing it, amp. It is auto bias, right? yes. Right, and it also I think there's a bank of LEDs on the front, right, that tell you yes. the state of the tube. So if you've got a bad tube, I'm going to assume it's going to tell you that. Yeah, and also they do run these tubes very conservatively i mean you can get more power out of a 65 right. 50 than 50 watts but um so that should equate to longer life of course so they don't drive them mercilessly <laughs> you know they yeah. don't uh, yeah yeah i guess that is good for, that is good for uh somebody who wants to not have to buy a new set of tubes every couple of years because i guess like light bulbs they are all eventually a fail at some point or hard drives you know yeah, I mean, sure, it is the case they do, but, you know, I've owned tube gear for a very long time, and um, I just don't find it an issue. It's not something that worries me. I know I've read people that say, like, oh, I don't want tube gear because how do you know you're getting the most out of your amplifier because the tubes might be aging, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's like, to me, it's like, well, I don't know if I should eat dinner because... Who knows how long I'm going to be alive? So, like, why waste the money on food? I might not need it tomorrow. It's like, what? Like, just enjoy the thing. Like, it's, that's just a case of audiophile nervosa. Mm. Just worry, worrying about stuff. Yeah. And I understand that, you know, audiophiles tend to be more OCD than the average person. I'm one of them. But, and I understand the anxiety of tubes. I really do. I, I get it. But it, I think what here's the psychology of it for me, right? Is if I can't see them, if they're enclosed in a box like the Copeland, I worry about them less. <laughs> uh huh. Right? Yeah. I mean, you've you've got a tube amp there, don't you? You've got the Lieben CS six hundred, right? And I that's, do. That's a that's a similar deal, isn't it? That's tubes in a box. Yes, it is. Can't see them. Right. Yep. You can't see them, so you don't worry about them. So I think if you you know suffer from the the anxiety of worrying about a tube's biasing or lifespan <laughs> or condition, just get a tube amp that's where the tubes aren't on display. Yeah, because what you put it in your rack and you look at it just like a solid state amp and go, yeah, that's good. I don't know. That's that's the way I look at it. Anyway. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, I've got to give a shout out to Campfire because I feel a bit sorry for them actually because mm. they've just launched two new headphones or two new variations of existing models. And they were meant to debut those new models at CanJam in New York on the weekend. Huh. But, but because they're based in Portland, and I think the West Coast of the USA was hit by a huge snowstorm at the end of last week, yes. they got snowed in and couldn't make it. They, they, they couldn't get the flight out to New York oh, wow. to show off these, these new earphone models. Wow. So what a bummer that is. You know, they booked the, head, the headphone space at yes. CanJam, and yes. uh, 
Mm. Yeah, couldn't couldn't make it. I, I I mean, you know, all the planning that goes into that, and you know, they just they just can't execute it essentially, which is just what a bummer. So I'm going to give them a shout out because they've got this mm. new Andromeda. So and and the Andromeda is the green earphone. I think it's it's possibly I think Campfire's most popular earphone, even though it originally sold for about a grand. Wow. Okay. And it's this small, all balanced armature implementation or design it's yeah it's green with these kind of this geometrically shaped earpiece which many well not many but some manufacturers have tried to copy Hmm. but this new version is called the andromeda emerald c and what they've done is they've they've kept the the green the, the, the yeah the colorway but they've sort of smoothed the edges of of the earpiece. Mm. So it won't feel quite as industrial in the hand, won't look quite as sharp. I don't mean sharp as in it will cut you. I just mean sharp as in like a sharp as in a pair of trousers and the crease mm. down a pair of trousers being sharp, mm. right? Not that you'd ever do that, but you know, <laughs> people did back in the day. Anyway, so you've got five balanced armature drivers in this thing. You've got two on the low end, one for the mids, two for the, the, the higher frequencies. And I believe that it also comes with new packaging, three cables. And I've noticed this as a trend now with IEM manufacturers, not just to put three cables in for the sake of it, but to put three cables in or two cables in with different terminations. Because if you're a headphone enthusiast, chances are you've got a portable player and it might have a three and a half mm. mil socket on it, but also maybe a two and a half mil and or a 4.4 mil Pentacon connector for the balanced. So. You know, like I think it's it's tapping into that trend as well, which I think is sensible. You know, like if if portable player manufacturers are putting it on their devices, then if you're a headphone company or an earphone company, you want to provide the connectivity to you know access those extra features that you're finding on a DAP or hmm. on a or even on a dongle DAC, because some of them are have the balance connectors on dongle DACs now. So. Anyway, so the new Andromeda sells for $1,450. Hmm. So a little bit more than the original. Um, although there was another version. Was it called the Andromeda 2020, which obviously came out three years ago? Was it 2020? I've forgotten now because there's just so many campfire models. Hmm. And, you know, I was talking with a friend about this actually on the phone last week, and he was saying, like, you know, it's they're very different in, in terms of, the rate at which they introduce new models. And I was saying, yeah, it's probably because they're a smaller company and they have to. Like if you're Sennheiser, you don't have to revamp mm. your headphone range very often because you're Sennheiser and you're enormous, right? So you just get a, a successful model and you just keep promoting that and selling that. But if you're a smaller company like Campfire, you have to keep, I guess, essentially refreshing people's attention. Mm. So drawing eyeballs back to you. So, and this is the unfortunate nature of the way the world is. People, you know, like to see new stuff and like to see stuff updated. But also on the other side of that coin, you've got a designer like somebody like Ken Ball, who I think is quite restless. And then he's like, oh, I found this new thing that I can implement in an earphone. And so he does it, Hmm. you know, which begets a new model or a new version. And the same is true of their, well, this was a flagship earphone of theirs. And I say flagship as in the most expensive thing they made but it isn't anymore. But the Solaris is now shipping in a new version called Stellar Horizon. And that has, I mean, it's really hard to describe how this is different to the original. And then also, I think also there was a, a Solaris 2020 
Um, but this is a completely differently styled earpiece. It looks like it's an aluminium earpiece or aluminium if you're in the USA. Actually, I think, no, I do have, let me, no, it's not aluminium, sorry, it's stainless steel. And you would make that mistake. Hmm. Um, but it's also, yeah, machine steel with gold PVD inlays that contrast with black laser cut acrylic. I'm quoting for the press release there. Mm -hmm. um, but it just, it looks like a very unusually attractive earphones, which is why I talk about Campfire so much, mm. because their earphones look like wonderful pieces of industrial design slash art. Yes. Like I, th yeah. I think they look really interesting and always have done. So for me, I'm always drawn to that kind of product where the visuals, the aesthetics, and the way that they feel in the hand and obviously in the ear feed into my enjoyment of the product, not just the sound quality. Mm -hmm. The Solaris is a hybrid design. So we've got, uh, let me get this right. I think it's a pair of balanced armature drivers on the, on the uppermost frequencies on the treble. Then you've got, again, like the Andromeda, a single, I think it's a dual diaphragm BA, like the Andromeda. And that's doing the mid-range. But then for the rest of the, the frequency range, but I think also augmenting what the, the BAs do to some degree, is a full range, 10 millimeter, and it's called an ADLC dynamic driver. I, I forget what ADLC means. Mm. I have noticed that, I don't know whether you've noticed this as well, Michael, more and more manufacturers are sort of branding the innovations that they put into products, right? So not only do you have to know the product as somebody like you or I who's covering these things, but you have to know what that feature is mm -hmm. or what that means, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. that dynamic driver inside the new Solaris has, has a new venting system. It's called a radial venting system, which apparently expands the, the physical space in which the driver works. But mm. without speaking to Ken Ball or Caleb campfire i'm going to be a bit hazy on that so i think you know if you're re reviewing this kind of product one question you need to ask is what the hell is radial venting <laughs> yeah. you know right. do you know what i mean like yeah i think and, what and is also, it and why should i care yeah yeah and what's adlc remind us because i've forgotten already so and i know that that's been around for a while i know it's the the, the material makeup of the dynamic driver but you know, when manufacturers wrap all the, these, all of the, their innovations mm. in sort of sub brand names and iFi do this a lot, you know, mm -hmm. you know, when we get a press release from iFi, well, first of all, it's usually five pages of PDF <laughs> and it's just got so many different technologies that they've branded in that. So you have to know what all of those things do. Mm. Right. And I, I think it rather than explain it, which I guess they do to a certain degree, but press releases have to be promotional as well as informational. So, you know, when I'm writing a news story, mm. I try and strip out all of the promotional mm. stuff because mm. I just want to get to the core of like, what is it? And like you say, why should I care? Mm. Um, sometimes that's tricky. For example, like the cables, the three cables that come with the, each of these uh, new models, the Emerald Sea Andromeda and the Stellar Horizon Solaris, they are called time stream cables. Time stream. I mean, for me, that's an episode of Doctor Who. I, I, I don't know what that means. Now, I know that if we ask, I'm sure Ken Ball would say, okay, well, it means this and this and this and this. 
But, mm. you know, just, just calling it time stream, I guess they have to decide what goes into the press release, what to leave out, and they chose to leave that out. But again, if you're reviewing these earphones, you know, you want to know what, what does time stream mean? And finally, the pricing on the new Solaris Stellar Horizon. It's a big one. It's a big, big number. 2670 US dollars, mm. which is not out of whack with industry trends because I've noticed, well, we've seen it already with, with over-ear headphones becoming increasingly more luxurious and expensive over the last five or six, seven, eight, I don't know, however, however many years it is. Don't you hate it when people do that? I just did it. You know, they, they go, you know, during the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 years, you know, like, it's like, where do you stop counting? I think really it should, you should get two, right? You should get you, during the last five or six mm. or maybe nine or 10, you don't get to have more than two numbers, right? And I just broke that rule. But anyway, in the last 10 years, high-end headphones have increased in price or rather the upper tier mm. has kind of gone a long way north. And I think in-ear monitors are following suit. And I think the Solaris Stellar Horizon is, you know, is on that trajectory, I can't even say it, trajectory. So yeah, <sighs> anyway. Well, I mean, I will, yeah. I would jump in just to say that I'm looking at them, you know, on mm. the campfire website and it should be obvious, but I'll say it anyway. I mean, part of the price um, and part of what you're paying for outside of the performance and the technology is the appearance. Mm -hmm. And I actually am intrigued by the way they look. Um, mm -hmm. And also the name, you know, Solaris is, was a great movie. It was. Tarkovsky. And so I think there's references here. The, the look of these almost look like they could have come out of a Cronenberg movie to me. Mm -hmm. You know, that interesting kind of uh, almost look, they almost look like some sort of takeoff on a human organ with any, in, in any event, um, the design of them, I mean, it's, it's, it's staring you in the face and it's not something, it's something I value in, in, in the hi-fi I buy, I do care what things look like. And, you know, so part of this price is you know, part of the cost here is what you're looking at. <clears throat> I see parallels to the watch market. Mm. Not that I know anything about the watch market. I have to <laughs> qualify with what I'm about to say, but yeah, I don't either. You know, no yeah. one, no, no one really needs a watch, mm. but they're just nice objects to own and use. And I guess you buy a certain one because it's aesthetics and it's look and it's feel and it's fit. And then obviously how, how luxurious it feels to you will determine what you buy. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not a necessary product. I mean, I, I just use an Apple Watch, you know, and before I had that, I hadn't used a watch for years. Yeah. But I look at the the Solaris Stellar Horizon and think, yeah, that's that appeals to the kind of the watch buyer in me if it was, I guess, more awake, you know, I kind of look yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a nice object, mm -hmm. right? And then it obviously has a function as well. It's not for everybody. You know, if you want the best bang for buck, in-ear monitor, then actually you can go and use what I'm using right now because they're absolutely fantastic for like a couple of hundred bucks. Sennheiser IE 300. Because hmm. I stupidly didn't bring any closed back headphones here ah. to Portugal. What, a, what an idiot. And, <laughs> and here I am doing a podcast and you can't have open back headphones on a podcast because your voice, Michael, would leak out and then feed back into yeah. my microphone. And then 
my podcast producer Nick would complain to me about it. Quite rightfully so. He wouldn't be like he was would be being unreasonable. He'd be like, John, why are you using open back headphones? So anyway, so I'm using the the Sennheiser IE three hundred, and I really like them because mm. they're small. I've had to pop them out a little bit so they don't seal away too much of the sound because I need to be able to hear the environment um, in which I'm sitting because it sounds weird when your voice is just sealed into your mm, own head, yeah, right? Sure. When you're talking, which brings us to, I guess, <laughs> one of our main features for this podcast. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's it's been... It's been quite the journey for me. I, I kind of anticipated some of it in that, you know, moving half of my life from Germany to Portugal. So I'm in Lisbon now. I bought an apartment here. And obviously I knew I was coming here, though it was delayed by my eye surgery, which was a real, hmm. yeah, that was a pain to deal with that. Um, but when I got here, <laughs> I first stepped into this lounge room because I hadn't been here since it was finished because it was, it was a, an old building that was gutted and redone, hmm. right? Um, and I stepped into the lounge room and my heart kind of sunk as soon as I stepped in. Cause I, I could hear it, you know, I could hear the reverb in the room, you know, like it's a lot of people call this echo. It's not, it's reverb because it's like a, a shorter version of, it's not even a repetition. It's just the, the, the extended nature of sound. So if you talk mm. in a reverberant room, mm. the room will extend the sound of your voice and it does the same to loudspeakers. And we can measure that. So the first thing yeah. I did, and the thing is, I knew I was going to do this anyway because I was starting again. So I thought, here's a great opportunity to start with an empty room, measure it to see how bad it is, right? And in my case, it was really quite bad. So what I did is I put a microphone at the listening position, a Umic one, if you want to know that, connect that to a laptop. The laptop is running something called Room EQ Wizard, and then that's connected to the amplifier uh, so that it can send a test signal out to the amp and through the speakers and the microphone then in well reads that and then gives you a whole bunch of graphs about you know what your your speakers are doing in the room mm. right now what we tend to measure for the reverb actually i should really explain what causes reverb it's it's reflections so a sound will come out of the loudspeaker it will hit a wall then maybe hit another wall and then hit another one maybe hit the floor before it kind of eventually loses energy because every wall it hits, it loses some energy. And there's kind of like a, a loose, well, no, it's not even a loose industry standard. I don't want to say that. It's just my understanding of it is loose. So maybe that's what it is. Mm. There's something called the RT60, mm. which is basically, it's the, the time it takes a frequency to, to drop in a room by 60 dB. Mm -hmm. And that's below the noise floor of most listening rooms. So when you fire a test signal into your hi-fi system using Room EQ Wizard, it does a frequency sweep. And what the microphone does is then records what the, the speakers are doing in the room. So the sound of the speakers in the room. Mm. And it spits out a graph of RT60. So it's, it's every frequency's 60 dB decay time. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as I understand it, professional acousticians tend to focus on a certain frequency range from 300 hertz to four kilohertz. So we tend to like look at that as an indication of how reverberant a room is. So it's mainly the mid range of the treble. And this is basically because bass can be its own problem in, especially in smaller rooms, but also because that's where the human voice works in the mid range of the treble, some bass on some male voices, but 
it's a good indicator of how reverberant a room is. So I measured this room that I'm sitting in now, well, as it was, how long have I been here? Three weeks. Mm. And I found it had a reverb time of around one second in that region, 300 hertz to four kilohertz. Now, one second is a long time. And you could hear it in a couple of videos I made. I mean, it was just, it's obvious. To, I mean, and you could hear it, Michael, in the introduction that I aborted upstairs today. Yes. Because that was done in my office upstairs. And that also has a reverb time of a roughly one second. So, you know, you could hear my voice through the, you know, through the microphone and, and listeners will have heard that. And I might play it back again now as a reminder. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko. No, 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 no. And having heard that again, you, you know, it doesn't take you a graph to know that there's a problem in that room <laughs> and that, that a hi-fi will not sound good in that room, right? Right, right. So the first thing I did because we had no furniture or anything here, like nothing. Mm. So the first thing we bought was a sofa and a couch. I got them from Ikea. One of my YouTube commenters was trying to pull me up for having Ikea furniture. I'm like, dude, I just bought a house. I'm broke. Like, What's wrong most with people, Ikea Well, furniture? I don't know. I think it's a, another case of snobbery, really. Like, It's just mm. furniture snobbery rather than hi-fi snobbery. But mm. I mean, I, I, I like it because it's – I was thinking about this, actually, why Ikea is popular. It's not just because – it's affordable and it, it's great value for money, but also because you can buy it now. <laughs> right. Because normally when you, I remember my parents buying furniture <laughs> when I was a kid, right? And they'd punch in the order at the store, you know, in January, it wouldn't arrive till like June or July. <laughs> uh, if I, and this is true of most high-end pieces of furniture. If you, you know, there's always like a 12 week, lead time and mm -hmm. i'm like no i'm not doing that and i think a lot of people are like that and maybe that's a failing of modern society that we've just become such a now culture and we want to have things now yeah. but ikea gives us that instant satisfaction but in my case it wasn't i didn't want instant satisfaction i had a need for a couch on the first day that we were here actually it was the second day because the first night we were here we didn't have anything mm. but on the second day we'd already booked an ikea order and part of the order was a couch and a big rug, two meters by three meters, mm. thick rug. I'm looking at it right now. I'm sitting on the couch I'm talking about. And what I wanted to do was to see if putting a couch and a rug in the room would make a difference to the reverb time of the room. Mm. Before I go any further, I should qualify that this room is seven meters by four meters. And its walls are a little bit crooked, which is actually a good thing because yeah. it means you yeah. you don't get these sort of specular reflections as much as you would if you had properly parallel walls. But the big kicker here is, or in fact, all of this apartment has tiled floors. Hmm. And in Portugal, the reason is because it gets really hot in the summer. Hmm. So in the summer, it's great, but in the winter, it's pretty cold, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, sure. but it's also terrible for acoustics. So... You hear a lot out there. I mean, I, I, I do see this quite a lot on forums of people conflating one for one as a direct equivalent, full acoustic treatments with, you know, like just having a room full of normal furniture. And I've always mm. kind of objected to this. Mm. So I thought, okay, here's my opportunity to test it, right? So I put the, mm. the couch in, put the rug down, and re-measured the reverb time. Mm -hmm. And there's next to no change. There's a little bit here and there in some sections of the frequency range mm. 300 
hertz to 4K. In some sections, it's better. In some sections, it's worse. Mm -hmm. Now, hmm. I know people will say, well, John, you know, you've got a seven meter by four meter room, so it's 28 square meters. You've got a six square meter rug. It's not going to do much. Hmm. But even if you were to cover this floor entirely with rug, it's not going to substantially improve the reverb time. Mm -hmm. And I also, I know this because I've spoken to my friend Jesko Lohan in Berlin about this quite a lot. He's a professional acoustician and he runs the YouTube channel Acoustics Insider. Mm. I'll put a link to that in the, mm, in the yeah. uh, show notes. Mm. He's a great guy. He explains complex things really, really well. Mm. And he made a video about, you know, essentially why a carpet or a rug is a very poor performing high frequency absorber mm. it does take a little bit of the sting out of frequencies above like 1k 2k but i don't think it really absorbs much properly until 8k something like that mm. which i think is why when people say oh yeah i moved house and i emptied my room and i could hear a night and day difference between when the furniture was there and when it was out what they're really hearing is a change in the uppermost frequencies the furniture does have an effect on, hmm. but it's only those uppermost frequencies and it doesn't do anything for the mid range, but also it's, it's such a, a scattershot random way of trying to deal with yeah. Yeah. an acoustics problem, hmm. right? Because furniture isn't designed <laughs> primarily to absorb sound, hmm. right? I mean, you can get sound absorptive curtains. Yes, I know, but I don't know about a sound absorptive couch or rug. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether these things exist. Maybe they do in very niche areas. Probably curtains are more uh, common, but I IKEA have an, a sound absorptive curtain. Sure, sure. Right? And I have a set in Berlin. I use them. Mm. But they're only really good for the, you know, the uppermost treble. Mm. They just soften it a little bit. But I think people were kind of reading the comment section under my video about the the sofa and the rug, people were like, well, like, duh, John, like I thought somebody of, you know, your apparent intelligence would, would know this without actually having to do it. But the reason I did it was to, to make sure and to sort of demonstrate to the audience, like, this is not room treatment, essentially, like a rug and a couch and other furniture are not the same as professionally acoustically treating a room. Yeah. yeah. Yes, they do make a difference, mm. but they're not a one for one substitute. Mm -hmm. Right. So the next thing I wanted to tackle was this idea that maybe DSP room correction software could also be a one-for-one -one substitute mm. for professional acoustic mm. treatments. Because I think there's a lot of wish, what's the word, wish fulfillment? Or like when you want something to be true, so you wish it to be true that, you know, I can derack my room and it's just as good as having professional yes. acoustic treatment, right? Mm. Like. I think there's a bit of behavioral psychology to this in that most people, and I, I'm not, I'm not trying to be patronizing or condescending, but most people cannot for whatever reason, whether they rent or whether they have a, a disagreeable spouse or something like that, or husband <laughs> or whatever, but then they won't be able to put, you know, acoustic panels up on their walls and their ceiling. I, I understand that, but I think that's why people kind of wish that, you know, a sofa and a couch is just as good or wish that DSP software is just as good. Right, right, so right. I made a video essentially showing that DSP correction software can do things for your frequency response, but nothing for the reverb time, the RT60. Yes. And I proved it. I mean, I measured before and after with DRAC. I measured before and after with BookArt's uh, room correction software, which doesn't even go above 300 hertz. Oh, no, sorry, it goes to 350. Okay. Sorry. Mm. 
But, you know, you, we want to tackle 300 hertz to 4K, so it doesn't go all the way out to 4K. Now, I'm not saying this to criticize Dirac or criticize BookArt's room correction software, because generally speaking, I'm generalizing here, those things are used to correct base problems in small rooms. Hmm. And because I've got a larger room here than I have in, in Germany, and also there's openings at either end that go out to corridors, hmm. I don't have the base buildup mm -hmm. that you would get in a smaller room and or a room without those openings at either end. So my base response in here, my base, listen to me, what an audiophile wanker, my base, <laughs> right? cool. my base, my base response in here is, is pretty damn good. Yeah. Didn't Art Dudley write an article about this? Like it was just about audiophile wankers postulating on forums and their <laughs> their, their blowhardery pivoted around two two I guess high fi qualities was my bass and my soundstage. <laughs> you remember that article he wrote? It was fantastic. Yeah. So I just I caught myself sounding like one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, room room correction software is excellent for not completely solving, but applying a very good band-aid to base problems in a room mm. again i'm not somebody accused me of like belittling Derek live i'm like what what are you talking about <laughs> i'm just i'm saying here's the measurement with it and here's the measurement without is there a difference the rt60 i'm not like trying to belittle it i'm just saying what it can do and what it can't do yes so it's great for frequency response rt60 less so there is a new version of Dirac Live coming that a few people mentioned in the comments under the video. Hmm. But the thing is, what they didn't mention is that it relies on having a surround sound system. <laughs> and I think yeah. it uses phase cancellation to improve hmm. yeah, the reverb situation in your room. But you need more than two speakers. And hmm. I don't know. I think most of my audience are listening to music through two speakers. I, I, I know there are home theater people out there probably, you know, do a, a fake surround so they'll send left and right front to left and right rear mm. they'll probably do that so maybe it would work with that i don't know but even if dirag live could correct the sound of the the speakers in the room because i don't want to say correct the room because it's not really doing anything to the room it's just this is why i've called it room compensation software in the past yes yes, yes. because it's compensating the or adjusting the the speaker's output to compensate for the negative impact of the room um, Dirac Live does improve imaging and Jürgen Rice from MBL did email me with a technical explanation as to what's going on with that image or soundstage accuracy improvement. Ah. But again, it's, it's nothing to do with reverb really. Like you've got a reverb problem, you've got a reverb problem and a couch and a sofa <laughs> won't really help you that much and neither will DSP software. But I wanted to make those videos mm -hmm. to kind of put those, uh, those ideas to bed. Like we don't have to talk about this again. We know that they're not very effective, no matter how much we wish that they were, mm. right? And so that brings me to kind of what I did in the second week that I was here. And I organized this months ago. Mm. So back in November, I the first email I sent after signing the deed on this, this house or this apartment was to Vicoustic because they'd done my room in Berlin through the German distributor. So... Well, it was kind of awkward, really, for me, because normally I would have gone with a different company because I just want to kind of not be seen to be playing favorites with certain hmm. you know, certain areas of the hi-fi industry. But the thing is, is that <laughs> it turns out that the the, the big cheese of Vicoustic, hmm. so the CEO, whatever you call him, he's about 15 minutes drive from here. <laughs> so 
Vicoustic are the most well-known, I think, Portuguese room acoustics hmm. company. And I had history with them, so it was easy to make contact with them again. So I did back in November. I was like, hey, um, I've just bought this apartment. I don't know what the, the listening room is going to be like, but can you treat it for me? Because I, I cannot live without. Because Steve Gutenberg phoned me in January asking about my eye, mm. which is very sweet of him, really nice of him. Mm. Um, and then he was asking me about, you know, what, what do I think after a year and a half of living, living with my acoustic room treatment? I said to him, look, Steve, I can never go without this ever again. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm buying an apartment. The first thing I'm going to do is have it treated because, well, just for my own pleasure, but also I knew that if the room wasn't great, I wouldn't be able to review gear. And I'm here for mm. such, well, a significant amount of time, a couple of months, that I need to work here. So I need to get back to doing equipment reviews. So anyway, so Vicoustic came a couple of weeks ago and they fitted panels to the front wall, the ceiling, the rear wall, and also in a back corner. If you want to know the specifics, there's a video that just went live on YouTube about huh? half an hour ago, actually. Um, so I did that, and basically the results are dramatic. As you can hear, you know, the difference between yeah. me doing the intro upstairs to me talking down here right now, right? Yes. Now, I will say that the reverb in here is much better. It's not completely solved, actually, because if you can hear a bit of reverb in my voice, it's because... I'm sort of set in a direction where I'm talking towards one of the openings on one side of the room, and that goes out into a hallway that's not treated and has a tiled floor. Mm -hmm. There's some stairs down in the other direction. But I did the measurement, obviously, the before and after. And so it used to be around, uh, yeah, it was about one second, 1.1 second in here. And what most acousticians agree on is that a listening room for hi-fi should have a reverb time of between 0.3 seconds and 0.6 seconds. Mm -hmm. I Googled the shit out of this. I even checked with Yesco Lohan about it. He's like, yep, yeah, that's right. Mm. And my RT60 in this room now is actually a thing of beauty because it sits <laughs> right between 0.3 and 0.6 and moves around between there. It's consistent. Mm. It doesn't drop below 0.3. It doesn't go above 0.6. Yeah. I think if I did treat the openings, the hallways, either end of the mm. room, like in the corridors there, I would be able to improve it some more. But that's a problem for down the road as budget allows. And I, I want to get a bit more creative with that eventually. But I'm just amazed at the result. But also what really had my chin hitting the floor is, so Vicoustic brought with them a, a video camera. Mm. And they set it up to a time-lapse, which I didn't put in my video because I did my own time-lapse video. Mm. But one thing they thought about that I didn't think about before doing, because I, I was so focused on the measurements of this thing, right, um, is they did a clap test in the room. So, you know, hmm. the camera was at one end of the room, and then one of the Vicoustic guys stood about two-thirds of the way down the room, clapped his hands you know, before the installation, and then at the end of the day when the installation was complete. And the before and after, oh, my goodness. When I saw that video, <laughs> I was like, what? this is amazing. I mean, this is... This communicates to me the impact of the room treatment more than the measurements. Because the measurements, are like, hmm. they're impressive. And you go, oh, that's really good. And intellectually, they're very impressive. But when you, if you do watch my video, I'm not saying when you do, because I'm going to assume you do. But like, if, if people out there listening to this do watch that video, you know, the, the difference between the before clap test and the after clap test it's just a wow as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I can hear the difference now in the room, but mm. hearing things so close together 
in a video back to back like that. Those differences are, Michael, and I did say this in the video, for once, they are night and day. <laughs> night and day, right? And I don't often ascribe that to any piece of hi-fi gear, any comparison that I do, but it was just a reminder to me that, or rather underscores, that the room is the number one hi-fi component in any loudspeaker system by a, a huge margin. Yeah. Huge. So, um, mm. yeah, that, that's the kind of journey I've been on the last three weeks is I've just been diving into room acoustics because I thought it'd be interesting. I want to do it for my own satisfaction. Also, I'm, I'm trying to teach myself how to film myself because obviously mm. Olaf is mm. not here mm. and Olaf used to film my videos and now I'm having to do it all myself. So I, a lot of the... <clears throat> Yeah, sorry. I have on. a question. Sorry, I, I, yeah, please do. Because I, I just tell me to shut up. I'm sorry. I rambled <laughs> no, a little bit. Not at all. No, the question is um, so with DRAC, uh, you know, I've been through the process a number of times mm. with different, mm -hmm. you know, different um, gear. I've had him for review, some will include it. Um, the measurement uh, part mm. of the setup process. Essentially, that the microphone hovers all around the listening position. This is a great question. Great question because yes. So so you have you have to move it and take different measurements. So you move it to like front left of the couch. You do a measurement. You move it to the, the middle of the couch. Do a measurement. Right. Front right. I mean, I can't do behind my couch because the wall is there, which isn't ideal. But you know, kind of everything. But you, you essentially because Terry. This is why I spoke to Terry Ellis. Mm. Terry Ellis, who runs Pursuit Perfect System, is also a professional Dirac Live installer. Hmm. He does this every day of the week. <laughs> and I just, I, I phoned him because I didn't want to make any mistakes, you know, and also because I didn't know what to do about having the wall. Because normally hmm. when we've done it in the past in Berlin, I've got space behind my couch there. Yeah. But here I don't. So I said, what do we do, Terry? He's like, well, we just put it sort of as close as you can to go rear, left and right, and actually put it in the sort of hallway gaps to kind of capture some of that ah, extra reverb ah. coming off the hallways, right? That's, mm. the, that's where we did it. Mm. Maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. But it, the frequency response that uh, Dirac Live sort of read from the microphone wasn't that far away from what Room EQ Wizard read from the listening position. And this is important. Yes. When you're using Room EQ Wizard, you're only taking one point in the room. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, you got to be careful with it because it's just one point. And I did show in my first video about this is that, you know, if you move the microphone six inches forward, you get a slightly different result. Yes. Which had differences of similar magnitude to, you know, having the rug here and not having it here. Ah. So that told me like just moving ahead six inches is the equivalent of putting a rug down <laughs> <laughs> or thereabouts, right? Mm. You know? I just, I don't know, because I, I know that some hi-fi people talk about room acoustics and it, I'm not saying that nobody does. I'm not saying that at all, but it's not, it's a bit of a dirty subject in the hi-fi world, as far as I can tell. Whereas the guys doing professional studios like Yesco, they're all, that, that's all they ever really talk about. <laughs> right. the, the speakers are wholly secondary or tertiary mm. because they know that if they get the room sounding good, even a very modest pair of speakers will sound fantastic mm. and better than a pair of high-end loudspeakers in an untreated room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? So Yeah, right, right, right. I guess what I, I, mean, I was oh, yeah. curious well, about, uh, mm. in, in, again, in with, with my experience with DREC, and that is those measurements are taken, although you, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you 
they're typically they all hover around the listening position. But you're saying you went with G Rack out. Well, it's I mean it's yeah maybe a meter and a half or so. Okay, I mean we you can go tight around the listening position or you can go wider. Hmm. But I mean I just followed followed Terry's instructions really. But like I say the 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 frequency response that was read by Dirac wasn't too dissimilar to the Rumi Q was a frequency response. Right. So when Dirac does its f- uh, corrections or compensations, yeah. Mm, um, Compensation, yeah. Uh, those are obviously at their most effective in the listening position and in all those, you know, and to a lesser extent, the farther you move from that position. I guess I would assume so. I don't really know yeah. the mathematics behind it. Yeah. Right. And then, but with, so when you treat a room, as you've done now twice, mm. right? Two different places. Twice the, now, yeah. Yeah. Those treatments aren't, have, they don't share that same limitation, right? Uh, in other words, the correction or the compensation that a, a, a Dirac filter will apply um, essentially hovers around that listening position. And the farther you move away from that, the, uh, you know, the farther you get there, there uh, even in a room, um, that conversation is gone. If you're 10 feet away from the listening position. I think what you're trying to say is that, <laughs> you know, physical acoustic treatments on the walls and the ceiling aren't as listening chair specific. Yes, that's me. As, yes, 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 yes. As, as like DSP software and, and nor are they as, as small in their, ability to improve the rt60 obviously mm-hmm. you know room acoustic panels this is why i did it because i knew the reverb time in my berlin apartment was actually it wasn't so bad i think it was about 0. 0.7 0. 0.8 seconds because i measured my neighbor's room we did a video about that where i measured my neighbor's room because she's got the mirror image lounge room of, of my ah, okay my room in berlin so we went there because i'd already treated my, ah, my okay. room right and I just wanted to go, almost go back in time to do a before and after. And that was the way we did it. So we did a, like a like a clap test or a finger click test. I can't remember now. And measurements as well with Rumi Q Wizards. So my room in Berlin started out at 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, which doesn't sound too bad on paper because you think, well, the upper limit of OK is 0. 0.6. Mm-hmm. But when you hear it, you're like, oh, no, it's still not quite right. Mm. Um, so I've always had acoustic panels on the walls in Berlin, pretty much from day one. And I just improved them over the years mm-hmm. until I had the the acoustic fit out. And that was just, again, night and day difference. And I think the reverb time in Berlin is actually lower than it is here. But the big difference is that, as I've said before, like, like a blowhard, my bass, my bass <laughs> in this room is better than it is in Germany. So because the, the room is larger and it has those sort of almost like ports at either end, you know, there's more room for it to breathe. So the frequency response of the Booker A700 in here is, I think, a thing of beauty. So if you look mm. at that, you go, oh, that's pretty good. Mm. Somebody actually wrote, like, are you sure you didn't fake that graph, John, because it looks too good to be true? I'm like, mm. no, that, that was with the A500, actually, the stand mount. But like, no, like, I took screenshots deliberately direct from, from Room EQ Wizard because I know how easy it is to kind of draw your own graph and then <laughs> massage it a little bit and go, oh, well, or just bring that down a little bit there so it doesn't look too bad. Uh, right. No, you right. got to you got to do a screenshot. A bit like when you're reporting. I know you and I have spoken about this privately. When you're reporting upon the viewer or the viewer stats or the reader stats for your website, I take mm. a screenshot of 
you know, whatever the software that reports on those viewer stats. Yes. So in my case, it's, oh, I think it's your face, case as well. It's Cloudflare, isn't it? It right? is. Yes. So you. Right. So that's what goes into my press kit. I'm not like redrawing the graph in my own spreadsheet because then there's the opportunity to kind of massage the figures. Right. Right. Of course. So, so yeah. I, yeah. It's a screenshot. Uh, but, yeah. Right. So I wanted to be like, no, this is straight down the line, a screenshot of the way that this room was and is. Well, all of them are screenshots anyway. Mm. So, um, but I am going to engage in a sort of longer term project eventually with the, the office upstairs, because I'm not going to treat that with Vicoustic straight away. What I'm going to do mm. is I'm going to try and load it with furniture as many people suggest is just as good as a Vicoustic treatment. I, I don't believe it for a moment, but I am going to do it. I'm going to load it with furniture as much as I possibly can and put, you know, put pictures on the walls and build it up like a normal room as much as I possibly can, and then take an RT60 measurement, maybe, maybe this time next year. Yeah. And let, let's see how, how good the furniture is at absorbing the frequencies between 300 and 4K. Hmm. Personally, I doubt it very much that it'll be very good at all. It might do a little bit in the top end. I just don't see it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, this is, yeah. Well, it's kind of fascinating. And I guess, yeah, back to the really obvious point I was going to make at the end when you treat a room as you've done with the acoustic panels, you enjoy the benefits of that when you're not listening to music, when you're walking, when yes. you're talking and, you know, and yes. living in the space. Whereas, yeah. you know, a D-Rack solution, obviously is not the same, you know, it's, it, um, I guess I'm just, uh, if I can generalize, there seems this subject seems to be, uh, poorly understood, even by myself, but um, but out in the internet, it's one of these wild west of subjects where people claim all kinds of things, you know, um, mm. and have all kinds of beliefs that uh, um, aren't rooted in experience or knowledge or, you know, like saying, oh, I could just, you know, I put some furniture in there and uh, some heavy curtains and it's the same as treating a room. It's like, I see that a lot, which, which is what I was talking about with, with wishful thinking. Hmm. I, and now, it, I, you know, the last time I made a Vicoustic video, I got a lot of comments from, from viewers saying, I'm not allowed to do that in my hmm. room because my wife won't let me. Hmm. They throw their wife under the bus. <laughs> now, that might be true. That might not be true. But either way, like, it's just such an awkward thing to have to respond to. It's like, well... Now, can't you have a discussion with your wife? Like, does, does she have ultimate veto over everything? Mm. And it makes it sound like you've married a monster, <laughs> right? Which I'm sure isn't the case, you know? The the people that I do have sympathy with are people who live in parts of the world that rent. Yeah. Now, yeah. so for example, in Australia, you can't hang anything on the wall really without somebody coming around to find you for mm. it when you move out or like hit you with a bill. So I would never have been able to do this in Australia as a renter. But in Germany, I'm, you know, my apartment there is rented, but you can because there is a long-term rental culture in Germany and in France mm. and other countries. So as long as you return the room to its original state or thereabouts, you're good. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got so many – I mean, actually, that's one thing I should really point out here that I didn't in my video. So in this room, in this Portugal room – most of the panels here are glued to the wall. 
apart from the frame behind the TV, which is filled with all sorts of stuffing and then the wooden strips on the front. And the the panels on the ceiling are glued. Hmm. The panels on the rear wall are glued. Now, we did that to drive the cost down because one of the things I wanted to do hmm. for obvious reasons is I wanted this to be as affordable as possible. Hmm. So the whole treatment is five grand thereabouts euros hmm. but that doesn't include installation uh, okay now I, I i got the benefit of a free installation because the vicoustic people the guys that work at the office guys you know, i have to say guys because it was just dudes hmm. um four of them came down and did the job themselves and i said like do you do this a lot and they're like no, no we never do this hmm. and we normally pass it out to third-party contractors right so if you want to do this you can either do it yourself and save some money or or not, or ju- yeah, or just hire somebody else to do it. Or yeah, I don't know. I would never do this myself because I wouldn't trust myself to line up the panels properly. Yeah, Pro- properly, properly. I was going to ask how daunting of a task you think that is doing it yourself. Very. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's very daunting, but maybe for other people it's not. Hmm. And then you also get the people who say, well, I could build these panels for like 50 bucks <laughs> from a hardware store, right? <laughs> <laughs> which is the the blowhard equivalent of your you know the room acoustics world Ugh. now yes you can build your own acoustic panels for much cheaper than you can buy acoustics panels for mm-hmm. you can definitely do it and i had when i had dinner with yesco last summer i had i i, I did ask him about this he's like because he sells like this um this course on how to build your own acoustic panels how to fit them to your into your room mm. and they're all essentially base traps they're all the same kind of panel so it shows you how to build the panel how to attach it to the, basically where the wall meets the ceiling so in the kind of i forget what that's called like where the so it's a complete sort of a to z on how to do this diy but he said even if you're diying it it's going to cost you two grand two and a half grand to do a room and then you know once you get above five grand he said it's mostly aesthetics yeah because you're not getting any sort of acoustic benefits from spending more. You're getting aesthetic benefits, which I think is possibly the, you know, I say this is the the one component in a hi-fi system that has the most impact, but it's also the one component where aesthetics are the most important, mm. right? Because it's this shit on your walls and ceiling. And there's no get, <laughs> there's no getting around it. You can't just go, oh, I've treated my room by putting some panels just on my front wall. That's not room treatment because you've just done one wall. Yeah. It will help a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And the the Vicoustic chaps did this front wall first, so that basically the TV wall, and it did make a difference. It did. Mm. But it wasn't night and day blows out of the water different. Mm. You know, it was every extra wall added a bit more and a bit more. And the ceiling, again, I've, I've been talking about this for mm. probably two years now. The ceiling, I think, is the most important. Because if we're to accept that the floor is a reflective surface, right? It's why we put a rug down, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or why many people do. We also have to accept then that the ceiling is a reflective surface. Yeah, of course, yeah. Because the sound comes out of the speaker, it goes left and right and up and down, mm. right? So I, I know that the floor is more proximate to the speaker driver. I understand that. But you're still getting first reflections coming off a ceiling that you're hearing in the in the listening chair. So you're right. It's a very complex topic. There's not a lot. Well, no, there is a lot known about it. But again, even if you've got all the science together and you've got it all sorted, interpretations vary. Yes. Right? Yeah. Some people. Yeah, yeah. It's again that subjective element in the objective. Yeah. Well, I. I yeah. Yeah. I would say. <sighs> That even um, how lively uh, 
a room is uh, is in the end subjective, right? I mean, some people may prefer a livelier sounding room. Some people might prefer, right? I mean, there is a little, well, certainly, I mean, if you're just doing it for yourself, there's plenty of leeway. But even in terms of when you speak to the people who do this for a living, there mm. there's a bit of wiggle room. Even there with, is because, hmm, sorry. yes, there is. That's why that's why the the parameters are generally three hundred milliseconds to six hundred milliseconds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like in that region, it, they're not prescribing three fifty or four hundred. And if you don't get four hundred, it's a disaster. You may as well bin it and burn your house down. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> right. You know, it's yeah, yeah. it's there is a region. There's there's a tolerance region, and obviously, the higher you go, the worse it'll get. The lower you go, the worse it'll get yes. because you'll overly deaden the room. So. Yeah, there is an amount of wiggle room, and so it's not overly prescriptive. But obviously, if you go north of 0.6 seconds, you, you're going to oh, you lose articulation. You're going to hear it as a problem. Yeah, yeah, it just masks the finer details yeah. because you're yeah, yeah. what you're hearing is a combination of the direct sound from the speaker and the reflective sound coming off all the walls like millions of times per second. Right, and typically in a in a in a no, in a normal room, un, let's say just a, an untreated room. Mm. Um, that uh, RT60 number can be all over the place looking at a frequency uh, sweep, right? If you're running a, you know, if if you're running a sweep signal, Mm. um, though that RT60 time, that delay that, or the echoic effect, uh, Mm you know, can be really high in some areas of the frequency range. And it can be, it's not some uniform single number because different frequencies will react differently to the room is what I'm getting at. So it's, it's a very good point as again, because from what I've learned from talking to Yesco and reading online is that you want a fairly uniform RT60 across that frequency yes, range yes, yes, between yes. 300 and 4K. You don't want it kind of jumping up and falling down. Yeah. So you don't want it to go to 0. 0.7, 0. 0.2, 0. 0. 0.5, 0. 0.9, 0. 0.1. Right. That's actually, in some ways, I think, worse than just having a uniformly high reverb time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my neighbor's lounge room, it does jump around quite a lot according to, you know, according to frequency. So some frequencies are much worse than others, which is, yeah, which is bad. Yes. Yes. So... Yeah, that can be a problem as well. So yeah, we're not only aiming to lower the reverb time, we're, we're aiming to make it more uniform. Mm-hmm. I mean, mine was uniformly shit, at, you know, one second pretty much. Mm. So and now it's uniformly good. Mm. And again, it could be improved further, I'm sure. Mm. And I'm I'm, I'm probably going to tackle that down the line, but not just yet. But yeah, yeah, because yeah. I'm not I'm not going to be here all year. I'm going to have to go back to Germany in a few weeks to have the stitches out of my eye. And I'm probably going to spend a couple of months in Germany. I, I just don't even know. I'm, I'm making this year up as I go along. Mm. Like last year for me, Michael, was was hard because it was the tail end of COVID and I was still very much locked up in my apartment, mm. determined still never to get COVID. Yeah. And after three years of doing that, it really began to take its toll on me, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I'd planned to come here. Like I started this project way back last February when I kind of looked at this apartment and thought, yeah, I might buy that. Um. So it was, this is kind of my way to way out of, I guess, the pressure of, I won't say the pressure of Berlin life, but 
Berlin winters are very indoorsy, hmm. and COVID has ruined indoors for me in many respects. Hmm. Now, yeah, whether I you see. agree with that see, yeah. or not is is entirely up to you. But it's not your life; it's my life. Hmm. So I, I get to choose where I spend the winter. So I'm going to spend a chunk of the winter here, probably most of the summer in Berlin. Obviously, I have to be in Munich in May, um, hmm. but I might have to come back for various things because there are other other sort of things happening in this building which I won't go into. But I have to. Um, hmm might have to come back and I, I of course i love being here but i don't really want to be here in a crazy hot summer yeah but yeah it's perfect for the winter even though it is unexpectedly cold in this lounge room because it doesn't get any direct sun which will be great in the summer yeah yeah but right yeah. now it's you know upstairs gets loads of direct sun during the day but mm. yeah, not so much in here mm. anyway this is this we should move on to a different topic because yeah, unless yeah. we – is there anything I've missed on room acoustics? Or, well, what? I mean, uh, yeah, it is a fascinating subject. I mean, I've been – I've not been ever as in as deep, but I've had experiences with people here that perform measurements, mm. um, and it's a fascinating subject, yeah. It is. The more I get – yeah, the more I get into it, the more I want to keep diving into it. But the problem is, is I know that for my YouTube audience, it, it's – they're going to get annoyed. Mm. There'll be another video about room acoustics. <laughs> how boring. <laughs> but, but it does seem that I am like now doing groups of videos. So at the end of last year, mm. I did a group of videos on mm. Bluetooth noise cancelling headphones, and now I'm doing a group of videos about room acoustics to the to the best of my ability. I'm not an expert at all. I'm just learning as I go along, mm. right? But this is I'm sharing what I've learned so far and what I've done, right? Now you're also doing a group of phono stage reviews, right? Which is yeah. my tacky segue. Into yeah, the I saw that. I was like, oh, uh -huh. nice. <laughs> right? So because you're, yeah, we spoke about it in the last podcast, but today I think you want to talk about the shit Manny too. Yes. Yeah, so I've got a total of eight different phono stages here for review, and I'm going to review them in ascending price order. Mm -hmm. Which means the Schitt's Manny 2 at $149 will be the first uh, review to go up. And that review um, should arrive this week. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm really putting finishing touches on it, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and so what I would – I feel very comfortable sharing is um, it is one hell of a phono stage. And it is one hell of a phono stage for $149. Right. You know, it's uh, – I what I will add, getting back to this subject you were touching on earlier with the uh, the two new shit amplifiers, and, you mm. know, you can buy um, inexpensive uh, switching amps on Amazon and blah, blah, blah. I'm someone mm. who really appreciates uh, when I buy things – a lot of times when when it makes sense, I, I do enjoy the story and the people and the company. And that applies. Mm -hmm. That's not only hi-fi. It's the same thing with boots. I'm fucking obsessed with fucking boots. Anyway. Mm -hmm. You don't want to say you're obsessed with fucking boots. You just want to say you're obsessed with boots because <laughs> that's a different conversation, Michael. <laughs> that's one yes. that's one for offline. <laughs> <laughs> oh man but um yeah. <laughs> so the story in the and the company and um 
these things interest me and they have mm-hmm. real value for me. I like to mm-hmm. invest in companies that I have respect for and that, you know, that I know something about. I, and that is certainly the case with HiFi. You know, I, I devote a large chunk of my life to this. So it would follow to my mind that, you know, these things, all of these things matter. So I'm a fan of the company of, of shit audio. Um, do you think we do we do that kind of thing, you know, like we, when we think we're putting our money into a company we like and we like their story and the people? Do you think we do that because it makes us feel good, right? It's the, the, it's not just a cold hard transaction of here's the money, give me the product. Yeah, of course. The greater yeah. the greater picture, the, the bigger picture about that company makes us feel good. It's an it's an emotional reward for spending our money over there instead of over there. Oh, absolutely. It's a sa- well, it's the same with buying records for me or, you know, or yes, downloads. Yes. A, you know, I'm supporting yes. the work of people I like and of course, I want to see them with with music. I want to see those bands continue, right? I want more mm. music from these bands, so I do what I can to support to support them. And the same, I feel that same kind of sense of, uh, you know, helping the cause, if you will, you know, when I, Mm. it's it's of course where you choose to spend your money. Um, So in any event, you know, the the Shit Manny 2, it's just such a winner of a product. Can I ask a a spicy question? Yeah, go ahead. I may not answer, right, so, but no. <laughs> so how do you know it's a winner when it's the first one out of a group test? Well, I've already started listening to a bunch of others and I've owned. Okay. All right. I've owned okay. a <laughs> phone of stages since the 1970s. No, I can't say since the seventies, every amplifier I own in starting in the late sixties and seventies included a phone of stage hmm. <laughs> or they used to come with always. Um, and of course, I've heard countless systems mm. with phono stages at shows, and I've been over friends' homes where they've been auditioning different phono stages, and these kind of comparisons I've been involved with for decades. Do you think that like that? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm just I'm kind of I'm just running with a train of thought here. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the like external DACs, external? So outboard phono stages tend to sound better than those built into integrated amps. Uh, it depends, you know. It's hard. I mm. couldn't, I couldn't be comfortable making that blanket statement. In part, I'm not saying all, all external sound better than all internals, mm. but for example, uh, let's say we pick on the NAD C three one six BEE, which is their last class AB amplifier. Yeah which has an inbuilt phono stage. I don't own it anymore because I gave it away to one of my patrons. Okay. But the phono stage in that was good, mm. and I was perfectly happy with it until I connected. I think it was actually a shit Manny, the original shit Manny, yeah. which sounded a bit livelier. Mm. And apparently the Manny 2 is a step up again in terms of sound quality. I forget yes. which, which sort of areas of sound quality that the shit were kind of talking about at the time. Well, they've lowered the noise floor fairly right. dramatically in the Manny 2 compared to the old Manny. Right. Um, I mean, can, among other improvements, yeah. Because last year I also bought an iFi Zen Phono. So like another, yeah. the, the UK equivalent of a shit Manny 2, really. Yeah. And I was super impressed with it. I still am. I think it's a great little affordable Phono stage. And I mention this because it's very hard to get shit gear 
in Europe ah. because demand is so fierce in the USA that they're all selling out and very, I won't say no stock gets overseas, mm. but it's harder, much harder to get shit gear in the UK, in Europe, Australia, New Zealand. Um, so the iFi, I think, have seen that gap in the market and go, well, well, we can make lots of products like this. Yeah, I've I've heard very good things about the iFi, and I've had a number of people ask if I was going to, to cover it. That's the mm. one thing when you – I'm sure you've had a similar experience when you embark on this kind <laughs> of thing. People ask if – essentially, I've been asked if I'm going to review about 150 different photo stages. That's, like, That's right. You know, I- as soon as you say, I'm going to do five things, mm-hmm. right? You've selected them fully carefully. You get the what about us coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. What about this thing? What about this thing? Well, clearly I'm not doing it because <laughs> well, I've already decided on the five things that I am going to do. So asking about, you know, the decision process after the fact is, mm. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a bit futile in some respects. I know why people ask about these things, but I kind of, I get frustrated when I can't answer people's questions. You know, like when they ask a question, like, which one of these should I buy? I'm like, I don't know you. I don't, yeah, don't know. Yeah. And it, it, it frustrates me, A, that I can't answer it, but B, that they don't know that I can't answer it. They don't understand why. I don't have the foresight to see why they ca- I can't answer that. Yeah. It's like me emailing, if he would ever answer, I could email Peter McKinnon and say, hey, Peter, I'm filming my own videos now. Which camera should I buy? <laughs> He can't answer that for me. He doesn't know the situation I'm working in and what I need. I Because I need like really good autofocus, which is why I bought a Sony. Mm, mm. Right Now, he could say, well, yeah, autofocus on a Sony is pretty damn good. But he might equally say, well, look, the autofocus on a Canon now is amazing. Mm. So you've got that as an option. Like, and we just go backwards and forwards, and it just we don't really get anywhere. So I have to kind of do my own legwork. You know? That's essentially what I did. Yeah. I spoke to lots of people in my position, people making videos mm. about, you know, what cameras they use, like Jana, Terry, um, and obviously Olaf, because he knows shit tons about cameras. But it was long conversations. I'm talking many hours with different people to even just kind of disregard one or two possibilities. Because, so I'm sorry, I don't mean to hijack your PC, Michael, but is it kind of... No, it's fine. It's a, I, I, yeah. But, like, Olaf uses a Blackmagic 6K... I forget what it's called now. Pocket 6K, whatever. Blackmagic 6K, right? Mm. Now, I would have bought one of those, but it doesn't have any autofocus. It has no in-body stabilization. Mm. And the flippy screen doesn't flip round, so you can't film yourself yeah. so easily. Yeah. But I love the camera. I love the big screen. So that was out for me, you know? So everyone has to go through their own decision process. Yeah, well, that's like, a, you know, right? yeah, that's a very good point. And I, I hadn't planned on doing this uh, with these uh, phone stage reviews, but I just... Um, the other day for, I guess, curiosity got the better of me. I, I still own mm. a Riga P3 that I bought in 2006, I think it was. Wow. Was that long ago? Something like okay. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's mounted with a Nagoka cartridge, the MK, whatever, the cheap one. Oh, the MP110. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, the MP110. And anyway, yeah, so- The yellow one, right? Yes, the yellow one, yeah. So I put that in place of the Michelle Gyro. I own the Michelle Gyro SE with the Michelle Techno Arm 2, and I've mounted it with an Ortofon 2M Black. Anyway, so that's going to be the, the table that will be used in all of these. But just because, well, in part because budget, budget, budget of the shit, I thought it would be fun to try this old budget table. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm trying to relate this to what you were just saying about camera. 
I mean, mm. so it's I still enjoy the shit, you know, with this table, of course, and it has there's some sonic traits that carry over from table to table. But I like it a lot more with the Ortofon, you know what I'm saying? Right. You know, it's just, um, it, it is the case with most things I review, anyone reviews, you know, that kind of context uh, matters. So mm. if you're reviewing speakers, I like to try a bunch of different amplifiers with them because it's going to change the character of the speaker sometimes more sometimes less depending on everything all to say um when someone asks for advice like oh so you really like the shit should I, the manny too should i get it well that's the beginning of a, a long conversation yes which is why yes. i've recently publicly said hey i can't do the whole buying advice thing i, I really can't because to do it justice you know oh should i get this Anything, these speakers versus these or this sample. Any, you have to know a lot more than than that. <laughs> like, there's no answer to that question. Oh, what's better, the Ship Manny Two or the iFi? It's like, mm. eh. <laughs> you know, eh. I think you can do it on the phone or in person in a real life conversation, but via email just takes forever because you can condense. I don't know, like. Uh, an hour's conversation mm. on the well, obviously on the phone would be maybe a hundred emails to and fro. Oh, maybe right. more. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like, and it's just it's too much. Frankly, it's too much work, and it's work I don't want to do, and I don't have time for. Yeah. Not necessarily in that order. I actually don't have time for it more than I don't want to do it. But you know, I guess being self-employed, I get to choose the things I want to do and <laughs> choose the things I don't want to do, right? And yeah. Uh, and when people say to me, "Oh, John, I need help," and I go, "Well, look, my my." video content on the podcast or the written content that is the help right that's where it stops yeah right? i'm sorry if it's not enough for you I'm, I'm sorry but i'm doing what i can yeah it's interesting you know i just i just wrote this response to someone fairly recently and someone was asking me to compare two things that i've reviewed one that i just reviewed and one that i reviewed like two years ago literally like two years ago and whatever that thing was it left two years ago so i haven't heard it in two years Yes. And so I yeah, this, this, yeah. So I said, the best I can uh, offer is you can read both of those reviews and yeah. see what I said about the two things. And it's anyway, that it just, it just struck me that, um, you know, like you as the, as the person uh, interested in buying something, I mean, there's some work to be done on your side. And if that, you know, a lot of work, yes. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. yeah, so it's like asking someone else's opinion is no substitute for doing the work, just as it, you were describing. I guess that's the time to the camera thing, but it's the case, you know? Mm. It's the same It's with boots and not fucking boots. I mean, just boots. <laughs> right, because if you're buying a new pair of boots, you're going to do a, spend hours on the internet, I would think, right? Hours, dude. I spend... Never mind. I spend uh, months and months and sometimes right. years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I, I spent a good two months trying to choose a camera. Yeah. And I spoke to Jana for several hours. Yeah. Terry, yeah. several hours. Yeah. All laugh like he, he must have been so bored of you know, hearing me. <laughs> like, what about this feature? Because I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm also learning the technicalities of things as well mm. as I go. Because it's not like I know a lot about mm. filming stuff. 
I've seen what Olaf does, and I'm, I think I'm making an okay fist of it here right now. But Olaf's still doing the color grading for me because I'm rubbish at that. Like I look at, you know, when I grade something myself, it's all bright and right. glowy, and right. like <laughs> just, I look all pasty. And like what the hell? <laughs> so Olaf makes me look good still. But it's yeah, there's a whole bunch of work you have to do as a consumer. And so the way I looked at, I mean, I obviously did mm. look, watch a bunch of YouTube videos, read a bunch of written coverage. But for me, that was like the start of my sort of consumer or customer journey. That was where it started, right? So there's like discovery in every little, every, sorry, every article I read or video I watched, I learned a little bit more about one particular feature, like another piece would drop into place, right? So it's like putting together a big jig, jigsaw puzzle. But like I say, if I could email one like Peter McKinnon or Potato Jet or even Casey at uh, Camera Conspiracies, mm. he's no one's going to have a definitive answer for me. They'll all have like a slightly different take, but there isn't just the time to give people individual reviews, right? So when you write mm. your shit Manny 2 review, that's, that's probably the beginning and the end of your contribution to the, you know, your thoughts on that particular unit and then you're moving on because you've got to because you've got to get on to the next thing right yes yeah i mean there'll be some comparisons made but the next one up is more than twice its cost so what what is that the next one will be the mofi studio phono mm -hmm. which interestingly was designed circuit designed by tim de Paravicini of oh, ear okay. yeah so it's i'm whatever there, that like so that's that's what I'm saying. Like in terms of story, you know, when I learned that that you know relatively again three hundred change dollar phone mm. stage was uh, designed by Tim De Parvicini. I was like, oh, that I want to hear. Yeah, right. And I've also got the ear, uh, which was his product uh, that'll come later on. Is that the the chromed? finished one i do have the chromed finish one it's now right. called i um it is now that it's a there were some recent upgrade changes to it it's called the phono classic in the u.s it has okay. a different name overseas right yeah does that have moving coil support yes so i look at that and i, I just look at it as an object mm. and think that's beautiful yeah as a and I think if I were to buy that, I would be buying it mostly because it looks like a beautiful piece of gear. Mm. And I know that the difference between, I know the phono stage in you know, the, this Cambridge Evo mm. 150 that I have here, the difference between the two is not going to be night and day. It's never going to be night and day. Never. I mean, unless it was just a miracle product, it's going to be there, And it, but it's what I call an audiophile difference, like the differences between decks or, mm. you know, uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. going to be there, yeah. but like you have to magnify mm. it for your audience, but then also zoom out again and put it in context and go, well, okay, this is not as big as say the differences between speakers because it's, it just can't be. Although you know, you get the source first, guys. Once once they get going, mm. well, you know, they they're all about oh yeah, the the source is the most important. But if your speakers don't resolve, the source changes, then it's kind of for nothing, isn't it? And so, your room's reverberating all over the place. Yes, that's, well, that would, yeah, yeah. that would kill it. Actually, I, you know, mm. I did say them in my video today that, that you know, it, it, you're kind of throwing away money if you're buying expensive gear and putting it in a poorly treated or poor sounding room. I really think so. I think it's just, you know, what's the point in buying a 10 grand DAC if you, you know, your reverb's over a second? It just seems a bit... <laughs> 
I'm not saying you're not going to hear the benefit to some degree, but you're not going to hear all of it hmm. over and above, you know, like a hundred dollar deck or whatever. So it's just, yeah, it's about context and, uh, what's the word here? Yeah, no, it is context. Yeah. It's about the broader context of what, where these differences lie, isn't it? Like with between phono stages, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's an important difference for many people because once they've got the room sorted, the speakers and their amp, then they're honing in on smaller and smaller stuff. And when you're doing that, you do tend to enlarge those differences because you're really focusing on that, right? You're really, you're zeroing in hmm. on that particular product category as you're doing with phono stages. Sure. Sure. It's yeah. I mean, that's right. When you're furnishing your home, you're not buying a vase first. Right? You're buying furniture, no. carpets, yes. you know, and eventually, you know, decorative items will come into play, but they're not at the forefront of the, you know, the list of what needs to be done today. Um, we should try and draw this to a close yes. with a couple of rec recommended albums, Michael. Sure. Do you want to go? You want to go first? Oh, absolutely. Um, so my recommendation: the band name is Big Brave, and the album is Nature Mort. Um, mm -hmm. And this was just released the other uh, last week, I think. Yeah, last Friday, and Big Brave is a three-piece band um and it's let's call it hardcore i mean mm. I, I i always like i never know what to call i'm not a good genre person because they i don't know they never mean anything to me but it's mm. you know it is that kind of they sound to me a bit like boris and it's heavy 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 guitar sound at, at times um and the lead uh, singer and one of the guitar players is a woman robin Wati, I guess. Mm. Um, anyway, it's just a badass record, man. I, I, I was, you know, sometimes I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm really in. I go looking for badass, like I'm in the mood. I want something to overwhelm everything, mm -hmm. and uh, and this one just uh, did the trick. <clears throat> Their last record uh, was 2021. It was called vital V I T A L vital. Mm -hmm. And I love that record. So when this, I saw the news that this was coming out, I was very excited, um, to hear a new record from this band. And it's just, it's, I, I just love it. It's on thrill jockey records. You can, oh, okay. yeah, you can get it on Bandcamp, which I proper hipster label. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess at some point, you know, once you pass your 60s, I don't really care. Like, hipster? Yeah, sure. I'll be a six-year-old hipster. Yeah. Yeah, right. If you Actually, if you like stuff that's kind of overwhelming, I know you like idols. So yeah. I discovered something, an artist called TV Priest. Again, a UK band. I call them post-punk or punk or mm. whatever you want to call it. Like, it's just a fairly aggressive guitar sound with a shouty dude at the front, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I love that. It's just fantastic. But TV Priest, it was, I mean, he's, he they have the, the, the yeah, it's a they uh they've done a few albums i think from the last few years i think they go all the way back to like 2015 something like that yeah i'm looking now um, at their uh Bandcamp page anyway right i haven't really dug in that hard but there was just one song mm. and i just thought this uh, it came up in my spotify it's called it was beautiful okay by TV priest. I see it here. Yeah. It's shouty, shouty rock song. It's great. Yeah. And they're on sub pop, which is another hipster label. So 
you know the hipster label right there we go see but my album recommendation today is is not on a hipster label in fact it's on a, a label called above board projects which i didn't know until after i bought this actually mm. that it's the same label that issued uh a compilation i spoke about in a video i think a few months ago and then i in interviewed the dude who put the compilation together that's heiko hoffman in berlin it was a, it was a like a a history of Berlin techno compilation called No Photos. Mm. And that came out on Above Board Projects. But I stumbled across something else recently. I think it came up through Rune Radio's feature. Um, and it was a track that I knew, but it was like the cover art that was being displayed on the amp. I'm like, what the hell is that album? Mm. So I kind of looked at it, and it's an album called ID Memo, A Future of Nostalgia, Volume 1. I've got to take a minor diversion here, by the way. Mm. In Australia, some Australians don't say memo, they say memo. Yes, I was wondering how you were going to handle that word, yeah. Right? Like, is it, what do Americans say? Memo, yeah. Okay, so ID memo. So like, if you're Australian, you say memo, I'm sorry, you're wrong. It's memo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so ID memo, A Future of Nostalgia, Volume 1, and, it, and it's compiled by a chap called Vladimir Ivkovich, mm who Heiko Hoffman tells me is an amazing DJ, and I'd never heard of him until I stumbled across his album. Mm. And also a chap called Ivan Smaggy, who I believe is a French dude who was a member of, is it Black Strobe? I think an outfit called Black Strobe. But again, I'm not really dialed into like either of mm. these individuals. It's, it's a compilation compiled by them, but the reason it's so good, for me anyway, this is a personal thing. Yeah. So there are volumes one and two. And they're essentially 90s uh, electronica. Uh. Um, but the reason I love this compilation is it features stuff that I know, like the Global Communication remix of Chapter House, but then a great track that I don't know by an artist called IF, and it's called Kissy Lower. Mm. So I'm like, what the hell? So it's a mixture of familiar and unfamiliar. Mm. There's a Reload remix of Slow Dive. What really made me go, okay, wow, these guys – I've put together a great compilation is they put on the end of volume one, a track by spiritualized, yeah. which is called any way that you want me, but it's version three. So it's, it's the third version on the CD single that came out, I think in 1990 hmm. and it's, it's a vocal song, but it's kind of got this weird treatment to it. It's very hypnotic and kind of psychedelic, but putting that on there, I thought was genius because the rest of it is pretty much electronic music. Hmm. And there's a volume hmm. two. I don't have that in front of me right now, actually as to what's on there. But I mention all this because I was about to go headlong and buy the vinyl, right? And these compilations came out in 2020 and 2021. Mm. And to buy each one on vinyl, so volume one and volume two, it would cost me in total, including shipping in Europe, so not a huge amount, about 80 euros. Okay, yeah. So they're, they're both two LP sets. Oh, so, so they're, okay, they're both double, yeah. Yeah, they're both double LPs. So you're buying four LPs essentially. Mm. Well, 80 euros, it's not horrendous, but yeah. I didn't want to spend 80 euros. Yeah. So I, I, I lazily punched it into Amazon Spain because that's the Amazon mm. that serves Portugal. And the CD, the double CD, so both volumes together, mm. 17 euros. I was like, yeah, I'll have that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. So I just thought this was a really nice compilation that flew completely underneath my radar um, and I think that the, uh, the, the genres, Michael, to bring it back to genres mm. that we're no good at in discogs, it says ambient down tempo, IDM shoegaze. That'll be the chapter house and the spiritualized, mm. um, space rock, psychedelic rock and acid. Ah, okay. So that's pretty good. Yeah. So I, 
I wouldn't recommend buying the vinyl unless you got the CD. I, I don't know if is it on stream. Yeah, it is on streaming services. Duh, because that's how I first heard it from Tidal. Right, so right. it streamed, streamed from Tidal. So for me, like for eighteen euros delivered on yeah double CD set of yeah not some mainstream nineties electronica mm. absolute win. Mm. Yeah, really really cool. So yeah, that's my uh, nice I will check my recommended out. album this month. Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. So I think we have talked the arse out of this episode, Michael. <laughs> Two hours and 11 minutes, my, you know, my Zencast was telling me. Oh, so we should really, yeah, damn. it's a big one. Yeah, we should wrap it up. Um, thank you so much for chatting again, Michael. Yeah, my pleasure, man. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Twittering Machines' is Michael Lavonia. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt.